Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm head of external relations across EMEA for ACOM. Today's podcast is focusing on the future of retail. How are our high streets and shopping centres changing? What does the future hold for the sector, its infrastructure and the way we shop? Now, sadly, my regular co-host, Roma Agrawal, can't be with us today uh, as she's got proper work to do. But never fear, I'm not on my own. I've got two great guests here to discuss the topic. Firstly, ACOM's UK&I commercial sector lead, John Lewis. As a project management expert, John has led teams on major projects and programmes across the UK and Middle East, delivering residential, retail, offices, workplace and mixed-use environments. Based here in London, he leads a team of designers, engineers, economists, cost and project managers across the UK and Ireland, working with investors, developers, real estate owners and city and local authorities to deliver buildings and places which change the way we work and live in our cities. Passionate about transforming our construction industry through better processes and increased productivity, John is currently driving ACOM's residential offer, which includes the delivery of an off-site volumetric housing solution. Welcome, John. Thank you. My second guest is property director and co-founder of Elandi, Mark Robinson. Mark has worked in retail property for 25 years and is president of Revo. Since founding Elandi in 2008, the company has been instrumental in delivering change to over 35 town centres across the UK. In 2016, Alandi won Property Entrepreneurs of the Year at the Property Awards and was shortlisted for the Retail Property Company of the Year Award at the EG Awards. In 2018, Alandi was shortlisted in Property Week's Best Places to Work. Mark himself is a passionate advocate of the role of community in repurposing and shaping our future places in response to the challenges and opportunities presented by the current market. Welcome, Mark. Afternoon. So uh, let's kick things off with the the big question. Is the retail sector in crisis? Last year wasn't great. Lots of shop closures, lots of big brands disappearing, job losses. Mark, start with you. What do you think, crisis or bump in the road? Oh, crikey. It's certainly not a bump in the road, and it's definitely more than a flesh wound. It's unprecedented structural change. Um, I think people going into the current malaise perhaps thought until fairly recently that it was a cyclical downturn. I think it's fair to say that this time it is different. The changes that are happening societally and the effect that's having upon the retail world, not just retail property, um, are profound and global. You know, we've got some self-inflicted idiocies in the UK, which don't don't help matters. But no, it's um, yeah, I yeah, I've got to concede. I don't think crisis is too strong a word, but therein does lie an awful lot of opportunity. I think um, you know we are looking at an opportunity to rebuild our civic urban spaces in almost a you know post-war reconstruction um, level of investment and change that's required. So, so who is to blame? Who should be pointing the finger at? Is is it the internet when it comes to the pure shopping side of things? Uh, No, absolutely not. I mean, there are so many different reasons. And the internet is the default one. It's one that uh, journalists go to. And of course, that has had a a profound effect. But 
there's many, many things that have gone into it. You've got global trends happening to do with polarization, where you've got this, you do have this internet-enabled consumer that's very purposeful in what they want to do. And yet they want to go to a destination at one end of the spectrum and be entertained. But at the other end of the spectrum, they want immediacy, they want convenience. And as I said, they're very purposeful. They know what they want, they know where they can get it from, and they know the price, the best price as well. And that's an effect of the internet. And the places that are struggling are places that don't fulfill either end of that spectrum. It's what we call um, a landy the squeeze middle. And John, what are your thoughts on, on well, there's no doubt where we're at? It, it's highly challenged, probably is a crisis. Our town centres, high streets, and increasingly shopping centres are currently pretty desolate places. And uh, you know, there is a need to move forward in a different way, embrace the challenge, look to introduce new use classes, and get the right way forward. Um, it is a step change that's needed, and it, it needs uh, imagination, innovation, and a certain amount of courage, particularly by the big asset owners who can see the value of those assets um, declining by the day, and, and they need to move swiftly to address that and put a, a, a more profitable future in place for them. I mean, is it a case that we designed things badly, we didn't foresee change? I mean, what? What's got us to this point? Well, I think we, we had a business model that was fit for purpose for about 60 years. And it probably should have started to change. The 2008 great financial crisis was a real sort of, you know, a, a, an alarm bell. And then we carried on for another 10 years doing the same thing and expecting things to change. And they're not. So, you know, at the end of the day, you design for 25 years. You, you guys are construction experts. You generally design for 25 years. A lot of the retail infrastructure that we have in our town centres is 40, 30, 40, 50 years old. So it, it's well past its sell-by date, and it's often been quite dramatically underinvested. And I think what has happened is there's been this roll-up and build-up of, of problems because it's been too easy to go on what has gone before. But because of the change in consumer shopping patterns and societal differences, we just can't get away with it anymore. And we're going to have to make some really brave, tough choices but actually, in, in a way, that's an opportunity. If you really believe in delivering change and um, uh, enjoy working in the built environment, I think actually the next 15, 20 years taking me through my retirement, um, hopefully, is going, to, is going to be a really exciting place to be working. I think it's the combination of the retailers themselves and their businesses, how they evolve. So the great institutions, you know, the John Lewis's, my namesakes, the Marks and Spencers, those businesses need to evolve, need to change. They have, to a certain extent, driven what the real estate looks like because they, they're the anchors and everything else works around them. If they're not going to be such a significant player going forward, then that, that needs other ways of working. And it does need you know, a real partnership between the retailers themselves and, and the, the, the property asset holders to come up with the new retail and the new town centre. Uh, whatever, whatever that needs to look like. John raises a really interesting point there about the role that department stores have played in the post-war expansion. And I think it's really interesting how they're going to lead the post-war contraction as well. Really interesting statistic. This. We're always trying to say, you know, are we like America? Are we ahead of America? Is what's happening here going to happen in Europe? And there's actually a bit of research which I think does tie a narrative together that I've really bought into. In the States, there's 13.2 department stores per million people. In the UK, there's 11.8. And in France and Germany, it's 1.8 and 2.8. So our whole post-war boom was built upon creating these retail places on the American model, anchored 
by mid-market department stores and variety stores. And that is the market that's getting absolutely walloped. That's the thing that is migrating to the internet. That's the thing that people don't see a clear purpose in. So the dramatic change that we see as a business happening in the UK in the next five years, and we're seeing it, we're seeing it with the restructuring of Debenhams, the fact that M&S want to close 100 stores, BHS, House of Fraser, you know, where this is really going to get almost Darwinian um, are towns where they're going to lose M&S, BHS, House of Fraser. You know, that, if they're not there acting as these anchors, as, as described, what is the new purpose for that town? Now, clearly, it needn't be a disaster. If they weren't working properly, these places need to be reinvigorated. And, you know, we have this expression in the UK called clone towns. So we created two, three hundred of these places that nobody liked anyway. And whilst the transition to a better future is going to be painful and there's going to be you know, money lost and banks enforcing, actually, where we get to the end of this, really, as I said, could be quite an exciting future. And who's, who's driving this change or who needs to be driving this, this change? Again, back to what John said, I think people have to accept change and accept the reality that values are falling significantly. Government is always really easy to kick, and I'd happily kick the government about business rates, but actually their response in terms of built environment, in terms of the money that they're starting to put into transformation, you've got the Future High Street Fund, that's £675 million that's going to be coming forward. It's not about supporting retail, they're really clear on that. It's about transitioning away from retail to a more sustainable town centre, and then that's dwarfed by the new £1.6 billion pounds they've announced to support emerging towns. So the money that government is putting in, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a lot, but it's only going to touch the sides. It really needs to be, that needs to be the catalyst to get the private sector money coming into the market, which frankly at the moment isn't there. So what are our town centres going to look like in the future then? Well, I think the discussions we're having with developers, entrepreneurs, less so the retailers themselves, it has to be said, are about the need to reduce the volume of retail, change the mix of retail, so it's much less mid-range fashion dominated, certainly convenience, but then a, then a mix of, of far more diverse range of stores and, and services than existed previously, so not just the, the brands, mixed with residential of its different classes to create environments and economies that, that have a 24-7 existence and not just you know when the shops are open and have their own sort of dynamism and you know they, they, they generate their own income and drive forward whereas too often these centers are places that money has to come to yeah absolutely so that they actually themselves have got a heart and uh, you know the footfall is is just there because that's where people live so that seems to be the way forward. To pick on two, two points that John said, so how much retail space do we, how much excess retail space do we have? We did some research, Alandi did some research with CACI, and they came back and told us that there was 17% too much retail space in the UK, and I looked at that and I just instinctively thought, that's wrong. So I said, well, you're wrong. And they said, no, we're not, we're good at this. And they went, then went on to explain that it's their view that actually this 17% of oversupply is only located in 49% of the spaces. So half the places in the UK are about right in terms of mix of retail, but the other half, on average, there's at least 17. So in some places, you know, you could be looking at 30, 40, 50% too much retail provision. So it's almost dangerous to make too much of a generalisation around this because some places are going to be fine. We have just raised £200 million to invest in existing shopping centres. They are not all broken, but an awful lot are.
And then just to echo the point about adding value to our town centres, I think that is something that I'm really quite concerned that the market might miss. You know, residential undoubtedly has a huge place to play in repurposing and bringing vitality back into our town centres, but it won't do all the heavy lifting on its own. I'm you know very very passionate about the fact that we've got to be bringing we've got to be bringing employment use and value add. They are back into our town centres because without those people in the town centres throughout the day, into the shoulder time of the evening and at night time, you cannot create these places that work on a 12, 14 hour basis. You know, two bedroom flats are not the only answer. Is it also a case about making our town centres more efficient and working better? Because you know, often you, even the centre of London, you, you go down to Oxford Street and you look at the, the offices above some of these shops and you can see that half of the the windows are, are empty. There must be a lot of space that's not been properly utilised and properly uh, you know, revenue generated. Well, the, the other sort of big change that's happened is the, the whole WeWork phenomena and the way that people do work in terms of offices. So no longer do you have big companies in large offices, but people um, are spread across cities, quite often in small clusters. They mainly go to those offices for part of the week. So that also is having a big impact on our town centres and the real estate asset owners need to respond to that and again come up with solutions which are going to work for that that new way of of working. There's some good again some good research around this I think centre cities have produced some research to show that successful towns and city centres in retailing terms are the ones that have the least retailing as an overall percentage. So if you've got 35% of your floor space is retail and the rest is offices or other uses, you've probably got a thriving town. If it's 65, you've got problems because retail in itself doesn't create anything. It doesn't create any additional demand. Um, you know, so an example might be Bristol City Centre, which is thriving against an Oldham. So, but going on to the sort of WeWork analogy, you know, people are changing the way they live, changing the way they shop, changing the way they play. And it's all, the barriers are all being broken down. And that's one of the really exciting things about, you know, being one of these agents for change as we look to break down this idea that we have these retail monopolies, these retail deserts within our town centres without any other uses. And what about the way that the property is owned? We you know, hear a lot about build to rent and these other phrases. Mm. You know, how's that going to change or... Well, again, I mean, it's the, the institutional lease, which has been the, the engine room of whether it's retail or offices or, or other things, is, is under huge pressure. So, again, the asset holders have to address that and respond with products that are more flexible, more short-term, less sort of driven around large volume spaces. And they need to create the environments that they can get a, you know, a, a throughput of different use types, um, different businesses in an efficient way, which enables those businesses to thrive, grow, expand, close, shut down, mm. move on. That's where the world is now. And too many of our, our city centres are dominated by buildings and spaces, uh, whether retail or offices or other, other uses, that assume there are going to be big occupiers with 15-year, 20-year leases, and it's just not going to be the case going forward. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, another absolutely fantastic point. This sort of mythical institutional lease, which absolutely does not exist anymore in retail, is a product of the post-war environment where people are happy to sign up for 25-year leases. And then if you're going into a relationship for 25 years, you know, you can perhaps justify a 
lease, which if you dropped on your foot would give you an injury. And then in addition to that, you've got all the supporting documentation around licenses to alter and health and safety and, and, and licenses. You know, that's fine if every 25 years you're going to come together as a owner and occupier to strike a new deal. But when it's happening every five years, three years, 18 months, but the legal framework is still the same, it's complete insanity. The amount of friction between doing business between an owner and occupier is insane because it's based on this premise that you you don't do it very often. And you know we just need to sit down as an industry and think, well, look, we have plenty of people who want to be in spaces and places. How do we make that easier? You know, how do we create the places that have got that flexibility to allow people in on a more temporary basis, but how do we put in place the legal structure to facilitate it as well, to cut down on all this friction? And then the other thing is the growth of sort of dynamic pop-up places, uh, infill sites, meanwhile use, very much sort of building on that theme of something coming and going very quickly, but being a big, making a big splash, being very successful mm. for a short period of time, but then moving on and something else coming mm. in its place. So those, those I think will increasingly be uh, parts of our, our town centres going forward, those yep. sorts of developments. I mean, we, we articulate, I used to call that creating sustainable places, but as, you, as soon as you use the word sustainability, people think about a certain thing. You know, the obvious thing springs to mind about, you know, CO2 emissions, etc. But actually, we're now talking about resilient places instead, because I think when you create a building or create a space, you need that resilience to enable it to be used for lots of different uses to try and you know, look into the future and think, well, how much flexibility can I build into this environment or place that I'm creating? Because, frankly, we're not building it for 20 years. We might be building it for five years. And how do we make it different in five years without tearing it down and starting again? What about the way that we, the, the way that's changing the way we get to the shops? I'm thinking about cars, the way the cars are changing, the use of personal vehicles. You talk about old infrastructure. Well, you know, the, the car parks that are take, dominating some of the town centres. Uh, how are they going to change? So I think that there's sort of two aspects to that, and different cities have different challenges and different opportunities. So obviously London has the underground system, but that creates a huge opportunity for transport-oriented development, where essentially you put the facilities around the transport nodes and the people can obviously easily come and go. When you get more regional cities without that infrastructure, then we are still very car-reliant, but increasingly, we can be more sophisticated about the way those car park, that car parking is engineered and operated so that it is taking up far less space, is less sort of land-hungry, obtrusive in its operation so that the environment around it is far less blighted by, by the car parking. I mean, you do get these, you know, with any emerging technology, you get the zealots who believe that... Uh, we won't have car, you know, people won't own cars and you'll have fleets of autonomous vehicles driving around and you'll get in them and go somewhere. I think there's many societal and technological reasons why we won't quite get there. And certainly when you're looking at places outside of the big metropolitan areas, you know, if you live in Suffolk, you're not going to be part of that sort of step change because you're going to get your new car to go to Ipswich. But certainly in the big metropolitan areas, I think there is going to be some significant change. You know, I've got a bet with my wife that our two teenage kids, neither of them will own a car at any stage if they stay living in London. And I've even got a side bet that at least one of them won't even bother get a driving test. Now that's got some really interesting um, implications for an awful lot of the retail models. You know, certainly you might look to out-of-town retail parks and think, well, actually, if more and more of your consumers don't have cars, does that model work? Or 
if it does work because they're getting an Uber to go shopping at a retail park, can we put more shopping onto that retail park because we need less shopping spaces? So what's the challenge in that and, and what is the opportunity? But one thing for certain, whatever, whatever we're looking, whatever we're future gazing into will be wrong. Mm. Um, so again, it's just creating this resilience so that if we get it wrong, at least we haven't shot ourselves completely in the foot. And the other thing that's sort of closely related to that is the, the distribution. So all of the internet shopping, the, the purchasing that we now do. So obviously we all know that gets distributed by your big carriers. But the return side of that is, is hugely complex. And this is where, you know, another thing that's, that's hurting the retailers because they're all investing heavily in internet as the way forward. But what they haven't and even worked out how to do is to make money out of it, or very few of them. And the big reason for that is that the whole return side is just too costly for them and too easy for the shopper. And how will that mature? We don't know, but it will have an impact on how our shopping centres and, and town centres are, are designed in the future. I mean, this is this is a whole hour's worth of podcast, so um, <laughs> let's just sort of slightly build on that. Look, at the end of the day, to chase growth, our retailers, spooked by Amazon, have started indulging consumers with behaviours they cannot sustain. That's fundamentally what we've come to. You know, I had a meeting with one of the major retailers who is reportedly going through a CVA shortly. And they made the point that if they sell one blouse in a shop to make the same margin, they have to sell two through wholesale and three on the internet. You know, internet sales, for various reasons, such as returns policy, cost of facilitation, everything else, is a margin killer. And the problem retailers have got at the moment is their margins are getting absolutely decimated. And that's happening because they are chasing online sales. And then when your margins are under pressure, you try and change your cost base. And clearly, property used to be seen as a fixed cost, but with shorter leases and CVAs, it's very much a variable cost at the moment, uh, which um, certainly presents a few challenges to existing investors and future investors and developers. So is your advice to, to consumers to, to make hay while the sun shines when it comes to buying online then, because that model is going to well, change? It, it, it is changing. Boohoo has started flagging customers who do excessive returns. Mm. So it, it, it has to happen. And it's funny, we always, you know, I, we, I speak a lot of events and people are always talking about the ethical consumer and, you know, David Attenborough makes one TV program and all of a sudden if somebody gives you a drink with a plastic straw, you never drink in that pub mm. ever again. Because that's an easy thing because it's just saying, hey, I want a different straw. The impact straws have on the environment as opposed to fleets and fleets of 20-year-old diesel vans driving around London with goods that people could walk to their shop to get and then will return. You know, how ethical is the consumer when it really means they have to, frankly, get off of their backside and go and do something? It's, it's going to be a really interesting dynamic that evolves because the only thing that is certain is that where we are heading is utterly unsustainable, both from an environmental point of view and just from a business point of view for the margins of the retailers. And then thirdly, the kick on from that for the town centre infrastructure, which, you know, we have to have valuable uses happening there. And certainly on the ground floor, it's going to look an awful lot like retail still um, to sustain our places. So what advice do you both give to clients or people who are looking to try and plan for the future? I mean, clearly we don't know what's around every corner, but how do you get them to think along these lines and make sure they're in a nice balanced position, I suppose? So I suppose we are talking to a lot of the shopping centre owners and uh, you know, owners of significant retail assets in, in, in the high street and town centres. And all of those conversations are around repurposing. They're around reducing the amount of retail 
actually they have in, in, in a particular location, obviously reviewing the mix of that on the one hand, but how can they quickly introduce different, uh, particularly residential asset classes to arrange in a, with placemaking being fundamental to how they do that successfully to create a more sustainable kind of self-driving development rather than a place that, that people have to come to. So there's a lot of conversations around the how, how to do it quickly, how to do it without shutting down uh, and creating sort of construction desert zones for large periods of time. And there's a lot of discussion around how they as organisations change themselves to go from being sort of retail experts to having expertise in in particularly residential, but maybe health and and other use classes, which is, you know, if you've been doing retail for 30, 40 years is is quite a challenge. So those are the the areas that we're, we're involved in discussions with clients, and it's all about helping them to sort of achieve these things more quickly than they might otherwise do. I think that's really well exemplified by what we're doing at Revo. So a few years ago, it was called the British Council of Shopping Centres, and it did exactly what it said on the tin. And you know, prior to my involvement, they did some very deep thinking about where the world was heading and came to the conclusion that they didn't need a rebrand, they didn't need a rename, they needed a complete repurposing. And it, it's a thorough, you know, root and branch repurposing of what the organisation's all about. So we now represent all owners within our town centres, everybody who's interested in placemaking, occupiers and local authorities as major stakeholders, plus, of course, all the fabulous consultants that help make the industry work. And because that's the full remit of stakeholders that we need, covering all the different uses to affect this change within town centres. But if there's kind of any specific advice I would give to an existing owner, it's probably... You've got to get real, you know, realise how bad it is, you know, what your asset is really worth. Get informed. You know, there's no point in just looking at a previous model and going, well, this is what we did last time, we'll do it again and it's going to get us out of this trouble. You've got to get informed about you know, what the art of the achievable is and what the likely events in the future are. And then be brave and um, you know, start being that agent of change that's uh, going to be delivering these uh, future places that I think the country's crying out for. So we, we talked a lot about the problems. Where are we starting to th- see things turn a corner? Where are we getting it right? Well, I mean, not necessarily in the UK, but globally. Where, are, where should we be looking to for, for best practice? I think some of the public sector is leading the way. You know, if you look at investment volumes in the shopping centre investment market, I mean, they are at an all-time low. You know, since the crash, the average uh, turnover has been £3 billion a year. Last quarter, it was £50 million. I mean, there is a buyer strike, there is an investor strike um, from the private sector. And, you know, fair play to the public sector, backed by some of this government money, sometimes backed by the need to look at their own coffers through buying income assets. They're actually doing some quite brave things. Um, We're hoping in the next couple of weeks to be able to announce a strategy with a local authority where there's a town which is oversupplied in retail, there's two shopping centres, there should be one, so they're going to buy both. They can all the tenants from one into the other and demolish the other one and release that for mixed-use development. I mean, that's, that's properly brave, brave and, uh, and they should be commended for that. You know, admittedly, they've got a lower cost of capital. Admittedly, they can take value not just in a commercial sense but in a social value sense. But, um, you know, I certainly in many ways see the public sector leading the way at the moment. In terms of making a real start in it, absolutely. And then the big shopping centre owners 
that, that we work with, many of them have made announcements that they, they're going to do 4,000 homes. It seems to be a, a number that is quite common. Uh, so they have, they've, they've sort of philosophically got their, their heads around it. They know the direction they want to go, but what they're trying to do is, is really work out how to deliver. Because they've got the, the sort of double challenge of, you know, they have an asset, it may not be performing very well, but it is still there, they still have tenants, they still have income. So how do they convert it, repurpose it to something that ultimately is very different without completely uh, losing that revenue stream? So I think many of them are, are beginning to get their minds around what they want to do, but how they get there is, is the mm. challenge. One of my slight worries, though, is that everybody, you know, people will latch on to something that looks really, really good. So food halls are fabulous. I'm an you know, enormous fan of uh, what Nick Johnson's achieved in the northwest and what Andy Lewis Pratt's doing down south. But this idea that every town can sustain a food hall and every town's going to require an artisan baker that's going to make a real difference. It's, it's all about looking at the individual place and understanding what his potential purpose is. And that's going to look very different in different places all over the country, which again is a challenge, but is, you know, makes life a wee bit more interesting. And presumably the, the, the demographic of the people living there has to be taken into account. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But not just in terms of spend, but age yeah. is really important as well. Yeah, and, and the change of demographics in, a, in our town centres, obviously recently we, we've got a scenario where people are now moving back into town centres, mm. living in towns, which is great. But also, you know, the, the age profile, as we said, it's not just students. It is the active elderly and, and those sorts of people that are wanting to uh, perhaps divest of their own equity and take space in, in build-to-rent-tide accommodation in the centre of towns. So there's, there's lots of changes that are coming together that developers need to really get their heads around and, and try to make the best of. So in 20 years' time, what, what is going to be the one big significant change when I go into my local town centre compared to now? What's, what's going to be the takeaway? Well, you're not going to go into your town centre because you're already going to be there. That's the difference. The vast majority of people will be in their town centre to live, work and play. It'll be going out of the town centre will be the unusual thing. And you won't have the, the big sort of monolith shopping centres being developed in the future. They'll be, you know, more broken up and, and mixed with other uses. So the huge centre that, you know, build it and they'll come won't be uh, the future. Fantastic. I think that's probably a pretty good place to, to end things. Thank you very much, ACOM's John Lewis and Mark Robinson from Alandi for joining me today. I think it was a really interesting chat. And as you say, we could talk about elements of that for hours, mm. but I think we'll probably wrap things up there. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe and please leave a review. And of course, tell your friends to listen to Talking Infrastructure. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with the next episode. Until then, take care and goodbye.